Here's a question for you. Have you ever thought about selling your business? I know that we're here on the show to tell you how to tap into your potential and get paid to be you, but what if getting paid to be you was you building something so awesome and so valuable that people wanted to buy it off you so that you could just head off and enjoy the rest of your life and do something else meaningful or maybe start another business? That is what we are going to talk about here on the Untapped Podcast today, and I would love for you to stay open-minded, even if this has never crossed your mind, because it's actually a really important part to play in the growth of your business. If you think about what would it be like to sell this before you've even created it, you can open up so many opportunities for yourself. So without further ado, let's get started. Hi, I'm Natalie Sisson, an entrepreneur, best-selling author, speaker, host of this untapped podcast and a lover of handstands and dogs. I've spent over a decade building successful businesses I love and teaching others to do the same. I want to help you tap into your unlimited potential and make the income and impact you desire simply by being you. In fact, I'm on a mission to help 1,000 women earn at least $10,000 a month and contribute at least 1% of their revenue to causes that they truly care about so that together we can create a ripple effect in this world. So if that sounds like you and you're on board to learn how to make the mindset shifts you need to have the business success you want and the lifestyle that you desire, then this is the podcast for you. So when it comes to building a valuable business, you have one chance to get it right. Best-selling author and founder of the Value Builder System, John Warrilow, is the business model expert sought out by the likes of Tim Ferriss, CBS and Inc. for his proven methodology and adding millions to the value of a business. He is the host of Built to Sell Radio. He has 300 plus episodes in, and he's been ranked by Forbes as one of the world's 10 best podcasts for business owners. John's amassed the world's largest library of entrepreneurial expert stories. He's also written two books, and he knows his stuff. And in this episode, we talk about why building to sell is the ultimate poker hand, and that every entrepreneur, yes, you and I, should set out to build a business worth selling. We also talk about why your reliability is hurting your business and that when you're a business owner that you can't even break away from your operations, your company's value is really negatively impacted. You know that I talk a lot about having your freedom plan and not being so tied to your business. We go through how you can actually start to remove yourself from that with some really fantastic examples of people doing this. And we also talked about don't fall victim to the ego stroke. So most entrepreneurs are never validated for their accomplishments. If you think about how often do you celebrate your wins in your business? And then along comes a buyer who like flatters you like the first time date makes you feel amazing. And before you know it, you've sold out with the worst possible deals. So we talk about how to avoid that. And we also talk about whether you are risk on in your business and how much of your net worth is tied to your business and how much you're actually leaving yourself exposed. Like so many people during the pandemic, when they realized their business was everything to them, they only had one income stream and that business dried up overnight. And finally, we talk about your freedom point, which is that point at which you just actually don't need your business anymore. In fact, the longer you keep it, you're taking on more financial risk, whereas selling it would give you full financial freedom to live a life that you desired. So I really hope you enjoy this podcast. It's a different topic to what I would normally have on here, but I have actually talked about selling your business and from the very get-go thinking about how you can build a business that is built to sell. So keep an open mind, as I said, enjoy. I love talking to John. He had some fantastic real-life examples that you can really truly lean into that will get you excited actually about what you can build. 
I am so delighted to have John Warrillow on the Untapped podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Natalie. Good to be with you. I'm super excited to dive in and talk all about what we're going to be chatting about today. But first off, I would love to know, how have you tapped into your potential and gotten paid to be you? Well, this it probably goes back a while. So this is going to be a bit of a convoluted story, but I'll tell you the backstory. I used to run a quantitative market research business and we had great clients. We had big banks, phone companies, technology companies. IBM was a customer. And I built it up to about $5 million in revenue when I decided I wanted to sell it. And I went to see a guy named Perry Miele in Toronto. And I said, you know, what do you think it's worth? We've got all these amazing clients, Bank of America, IBM. And he's like, well, let me ask you a couple of questions before I give you evaluation. I'm like, shoot. He's like, well, who does the research? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm involved in some of it, right? So, all right. Well, who does the selling? And I'm like, well, it's IBM. It's Bank of America. I've got to do some of the selling. And he's like, mm-hmm. all right. John, I can't sell your company. There's nothing to sell. It's worthless. And I left that meeting, Natalie, like an inch tall. Like I felt like I was, I walked into that room thinking I was sitting on this gold mine Mm -hmm. that I was going to finally get paid for all this work I'd done. And I left an inch tall. But I did learn from Perry over the years later that there were some things I could do to make that business more valuable. Like we put in a subscription offering. We made it less dependent on me to do the selling. And ultimately, it was acquired by a publicly traded company, New York Stock Exchange listed company. So I guess nice. my long-winded answer to your question, how do I get paid when for my whatever, it's really when I sell a company is really the payday, if you will. But it, I came to that lesson in a relatively painful way. Yeah, I can imagine. And there's a lot of people listening who are like, oh my gosh, I'm so my business that if I walked away from it, there wouldn't actually be a business, right? Which is kind of where you got to, even though you'd built up this huge revenue growth business. And I think that is for a lot of us, the true case. And I remember a really great piece of advice from a book that I read many, many years ago, not your book, but we will talk about that, where it basically said anybody starting out in business should already have their exit game plan in place. And I was like, good grief like that's just I don't know when you're starting out and you're just getting like how am I going to get paid and what am I actually going to offer I sort of think that's actually for most people the last thing that they'll be thinking about would you say that that's been true for some of the clients or people that you deal with now or are they a little bit more savvy and astute and they actually come in with that attitude of no no I want to build something that I can sell I think it depends on the entrepreneur I mean I did an interview on Built to Sell Radio recently with a woman named Jody Cook out of the UK, a wonderful lady. She started in the way most of us start, right? Was she had a, an expertise in social media. She started offering her services by the hour. She got to a couple of employees where she realized that if she was going to do anything more than just selling her time effectively, she had to put some processes in place. And so she went to the extent of actually systematizing her business. So like, this is how we onboard a new customer. This is how we buy advertising for them. Here's how we sort of structure their posts on Instagram, et cetera. Anyways, long story short, she sold her company. And that's why I was interviewing her for, I can't remember what she sold it for, but it was a a good exit. And I said like, what was the secret of getting yourself out of the business? Because a lot of people, she even named it Jody Cook Social Media or something like it was like JC Social or something like that for her initials, right? So I mean, it was really very dependent on her. And again, she did not start it with the end in mind, yet she was able to sell it in part because she did all this work in sort of systematizing. 
and she got out, she didn't even have an earnout. And an earnout is where you've got a future set of goals you've got to hit. It is a division of the company that buys you. And she got out without those. And she credited the kind of creation of these processes mm. with being able to get out. But I mean, to your point, she did not start with this grandiose plan. I'll give you another example. A woman I interviewed on the podcast is just a fantastic lady named Stephanie Breedlove. She built a company. She had a child. She was on the partner track in an accounting firm and she called up a payroll company because she wanted to pay her nanny. Mm. And the payroll company is one of these giant payroll providers. And they're like, lady, we do payroll for like Procter and Gamble for Ford. Like we don't want to set up some account for you to pay your nanny. And she called up a few different companies, had a terrible experience. And so she said, maybe I'll start a payroll company for (laughs) parents who have a nanny to pay. Well, over 25 years, she builds this company up. And to your point, there wasn't some grand master plan. It was just Mm -hmm. sort of blocking and tackling, growing slowly over 25 years. She built it to $9 million in revenue, 10,000 customers. Again, this is over 25-year run. So this is not an overnight thing. And after all that success, she looks around and says, okay, who will buy this business? She'd reached the point where her kids were out of the house and she wanted to sell. And she saw care.com. I'm not sure if you have care in New Zealand. Do you know what care.com is? No, I don't actually. Okay. It's like, imagine you pull up a web browser and you plug in your postal code and it will give you a bunch of babysitters in Wellington that are all five-star rated by parents. So you can kind of trust the babysitter, right? Mm -hmm. Well, care.com has 7 million subscribers. And if you think about it, these are 7 million parents who have nannies to pay, right? And Brie Love says, look, I built this company to $9 million in revenue, 10,000 customers. You've got 7 million subscribers. Like 1% of your subscribers buy my service. It's like a massive win for you guys. Anyway, she sold her $9 million payroll company for $54 million, which is Oof. like astronomical. Yeah. You know, it doesn't make any sense, but- Again, to your point, she didn't start with some grand plan to build, to sell, or anything like that. She came to it sort of midway through her business. She's like, who would want to buy this thing? And she discovered care. Mm, I love that. Actually, you just reminded me, it's an amazing story and so good for her. It reminded me of when I co-founded a tech company before I got into my own business. And right mm-hmm. from the get-go, we were trying to build a Facebook app with payments built in back in 2008 when nobody was doing payments on Facebook. Hmm. And we actually ended up having to really use PayPal and building an app around their platform in order to do it. And I think from the minute we started that relationship, which grew really healthily, we were like, PayPal could buy this out. Like from probably three or four months in, we were like, PayPal would be one of the potential exit strategy partners for us. But it was just a really interesting way of thinking. And every single time we were embedding or building in some other process, we were like, could they be the ones that we could do this for? I mean, it really opened my eyes. They are still building. They're actually profitable now. They're doing super well. So it's about, what are we now, 13 years on? And they still have a great relationship with them. And they are, I think, getting close to that exit strategy just because they have changed their business model so much and are doing really well. And maybe in 20 years, like the 20-year timeframe will be when they do it. But that's definitely was always the path was to be bought out and to build up a really great legacy and a rewarding business that could definitely be sold. Yeah. I think it's great. It's like you know the old adage of rising tide lifts all boats. You, you hook on to Facebook in 2008, it's going to like help your business no matter what. Yeah. The challenge with that kind of strategy sometimes is called platform dependency. And sometimes what happens with a situation like that is you become so dependent on a Facebook platform of some sort that it becomes actually a liability. A strength in one hand, but also 
people look at it as a potential risk for an exit. I'm reminded of a interview I did on Built to Sell Radio, a guy named Adi Pinar, South African guy, built a wonderful little app for cart abandonment, which is when you're buying something and you choose not to buy it, you get a sequence of emails saying, hey, do you forget this item? You want to buy it again? Anyways, it's a software app that he built and tied it to the Shopify ecosystem. So basically got himself in the Shopify app store effectively. And as Shopify exploded, he wrote it up with him. And when he went to sell it, I think I'm going by memory, but I think he had a couple million dollars of revenue. But he said, one of the things that discounted our valuation was that dependency on Shopify, that if Shopify turned their app off or turned us off or demoted us or whatever, then we would struggle to continue to win customers. So it can be sort of a double-edged sword for a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah, and I'm really glad you mentioned that because we did actually end up building from the beginning our own custom app. It's just that it could be embedded in there. And then I think we even saw that dependency at some point as not being a good thing. But even outside of apps, for people who are listening, you know, when you think about how many people I deal with who are building their businesses on Facebook using adverts, et cetera, and well, they don't own that, right? So I'm always saying, coming back to them, you've got to build your own assets, your own IP, you've got to build your own email list, your own products, offers, and host these either on yourself or platforms that you still have control over. And social media is just not something that you have control over and could disappear any day without you. And so if you've built your entire strategy on that, as Jody Cook, the social media maven would know, you're going to be in a pretty dire place if any of those things fall over, which they ultimately can. I've heard it described as, as like building your house on rented land. I don't know yeah, if you've ever heard exactly. that analogy. Before. I have. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had my trials and tribulations with social, even though I started my business from it and very grateful for it. I definitely had my love-hate relationship with it. And so I've been continuing to build, as you said, those processes and systems that allow us to kind of run this business without that and continue to strengthen that. So for people who are maybe not even thinking about this, why is building to sell the ultimate poker hand when it comes to actually thinking about this for your business? Well, I think it, if you've got a sellable asset, let me give you, I do speeches occasionally to business owners, not these days, but before the yeah. pandemic, I occasionally get asked to speak at an EO meeting or group of entrepreneurs. And for fun, I'll, I'll have them raise their hand. I'll say, how many of you guys want to sell your company? Guys and gals, how many of you want to sell your company? And like one hand will go up right? like <laughs> yeah. halfway, kind of tentatively. And then I say, okay, different question. How many of you would like to know you could sell your mm-hmm. company? And like every hand goes in the air, right? Because mm-hmm. most people don't want to sell their company. They enjoy what they're doing. They enjoy their customers. They enjoy the experience, et cetera. But there's a little part of them would like to know they could because that's like the ultimate insurance policy, right? Like if you could sell and when you get tired or burnt out, you could just hit eject and someone's going to write you a check that's enough money to live for the rest of your life. Like that's a really, really comfortable feeling. It gives you a tremendous amount of security. It also allows, if you built a business that's not dependent on you, like Jody did through her systems, it gives you flexibility over your time, right? So if you don't want to be working 50 hours a week in your company, then you can kind of cherry pick the kinds of work that you want to do. You can also bring in a private equity group or an outside investor. A lot of entrepreneurs, they love their business, but they kind of get to the point where they look up and they've been running it for 10 or 20 years, like Stephanie Breedlove, and you're like, oh my gosh this is like 80%, 90% of my net worth. (laughs) And God forbid another global pandemic happens, like I could go to zero and that's a massive hit on my net worth. So they kind of say, well, maybe I want to sell a little bit, like 30, 40, 50, 60% of the company, but still run it, but kind of take some quote chips off the table. And that's another thing that's possible. Again, 
if it's not dependent on you personally. And I think that's why it's the ultimate poker hand in the game of life. It's the sellable asset that you can choose to work or not. And I think it's just a tremendous sense of confidence that you get from it. Yeah, I love that, actually. And we talked a little bit at the beginning, the example of the guy who went to sell his company, that's you, and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't have the systems and processes yet where I'm not the one doing all the research, I'm not the one doing all the selling. So when is it that it becomes a problem where your reliability is actually hurting your business when you become too ingrained in it? And I can even look at my business right now. I'm in the transition of heading into maternity leave and I've hired on coaches for the first time in my life to replace me because I realized that when I'm off, they're not going to be around. So how do I make it bulletproof and babyproof essentially, which has been really great for me because we've got mm. systems and processes in places like crazy now. We had many of them, but it wasn't fail-proof. And that was going to hurt my business if I didn't have a workaround for it. So isn't the goal to like basically have the flexibility to work on the business, not always in it. And if you're going to sell it, that's what the ultimate buyer is going to look for as well. That's right. You know, Michael Gerber, a phrase working yeah. on, not in. And, and he hit on something that was all those years ago that was absolutely critical that building the value of your company to that. What I think when I talk to entrepreneurs, I hear a lot that the systems and the behind the scenes, the kind of backstage stuff has been sort of systematized in a lot of cases mm -hmm. where a lot of times we're not quite as successful is on the front end. And we call it the rainmakers dilemma for a lot of entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. They still are the rainmaker for their company, right? They're still the one that drives most of the revenue wins in most of the new customers yep. and influences <laughs> the most client relationships. Mm -hmm. If that works for a period of time, in my experience, it, it'll get a service business up to a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue or product business up to a million or two in revenue. And then you plateau where no matter what you do, there is no way you can kind of punch above that. And that's the Rainmaker's Dilemma because the things that made you successful in the early days, your ability to influence people, your marketing skills, your, your communication skills, et cetera, ultimately holds you back because you're effectively just running on a hamster wheel, kind of refilling the funnel with those few customers. And so that's when I think there's a shift that needs to take place, which is to essentially take the same skills that you've learned about how to influence people and market and create essentially systems to do that for you products, salespeople, sales processes that are informed by your approach to marketing and selling, but aren't necessarily required by you. You don't need mm -hmm. to run them. Again, Jody did this really well. She was the primary salesperson in her company, but she realized that she couldn't be if she wanted to step away. And she built all these processes and she systemized her sales process. Like, here's the top of the funnel. Here's how we get names in. Here's how we convert them. Here's how we like blah, blah. And I said, Jody, like, <laughs> I kind of joked with her because I said like, Building those systems for a rainmaker, for someone who loves clients and loves being out there and extroverted, that must have been like pulling teeth. It must have been terrible <laughs> torture, right? Like that must have been terrible. And she's like, yep, John, it was like prison. But my only solace was, do I want to be in prison for three months or three years? Mm. And I'm like, all right, I'll bite. What are you talking about three months or three years? And she's like, yeah, the process is cut. took me three months to write. I could have sold my business and had to succumb to a three-year earnout. 
because the business was so dependent on me that the business was not worth anything other than if I stayed around. And earnout again is for a lot of entrepreneurs, it's like a prison sentence, right? It's where all your creativity is sapped away. You've got a middle manager and you've got to fill out a form if you want to buy it. <laughs> Paper clips. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm embellishing, but the point being, it can be like a person sentence. And her point yeah. was like, do I want to take my medicine up front and just do the hard work now? It sounds like you're doing that in a really proactive way. Or do I want to wait and sort of take it down the road, but be 10 times longer? So I've always, I thought that was really, I thought yeah. provoking way for Jody to put it. I love that. And just to be even clear for people listening to it now, because I've had, had several friends who have sold their companies for a lot. And that period of like, whether it's three, six, nine, or even sometimes two years that they have to stay on in the business, either as acting CEO or whatever, in order for that company to fully consume it and take it on is just not a favorite time for them at all. So yeah, I really love that she had that foresight as well. So to be able to just hand it over and have a little bit of handover there, but not that sort of a prison sentence is really, really smart. Do you do a Rajuri? I do. Yes. Founder of Zero. Yeah. I've interviewed him on my podcast, actually. He's great. Have you really? How was he? He was awesome. He's just a really interesting character. He's got a lot of thought-provoking opinions on things and drives some people nuts, but other people really respect him. And obviously he has somebody who stepped away from his business that they built one of the most successful companies in New Zealand ever, the counting software, which I love and use. But yeah, what were you going to say about Rod? Well, I I had a chance to interview Rod. So Rod is Wellington, New Zealand based like you. and. I interviewed Rod on Built Cell Radio years ago now. And of course, he's the founder of Zero, as you point out, this incredibly successful company. But prior to Zero, he actually he got the money to start Zero by selling a little business called Aftermail. Hmm. And Aftermail was around the Sarbanes Oxley legislation in the United States, where he, big companies had to kind of archive their email in a more professional way. He builds this company and he gets two charter clients to pay him a million bucks each. So he's got $2 million in revenue and he sells it. He sold it to Quest Software, if my memory serves correctly. And he sold it with the New Zealand newspapers reported it as, I believe, $35 million that he sold this little company for. Not a bad exit. But what he told me after the fact was that he actually sold it for $15 million with a $20 million earnout. And he was a younger man at the time and a youngish man. And so what do you do when somebody writes you a check as a young person for like $15 million? You have a big party and you enjoy yourself. You relax and you take it all in this life-changing moment. Yet he told me that when he pulled out of that and started to kind of focus on, okay, how am I going to integrate my company with Quest and hit this earnout? It was too late. The ship had sailed. Like he realized that months had gone by and the way earnouts are usually run is, is your budget is released after you hit certain goals. It's like a downhill ski racer. Like if you miss a turn, if you miss a gate, you can't catch up, right? Yeah. Like it's done. Yeah. And so he missed a gate and mm-hmm. he couldn't get the budget to grow the, anyway, he left nine months earlier, nine months later with nothing from his earnout. Like he right. walked away from all that money. Now, again, it had a very happy ending for Rod. So we don't have to yeah. feel too badly for Mr. Jury, but it was always a good reminder to me that the earnouts are risky and they're not guaranteed by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. And probably not fun as an entrepreneur when you've built this baby up and then you have to stick around watching some business either like just do a really terrible job of it or take it to pieces or pull away all the things that you loved about it. Not, not fun. So I love that you talk about this in your book. I know Built to Sell and also it's one of your things that you really want people to focus on is if they are considering selling, not falling victim to the ego stroke. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? And why we have to be wary of that if we're going to sell. 
Yeah. Look, there's a thing called the proprietary deal. Let me back this up. So the way to punch above your weight when you sell your company is to get competing offers. It's not more complicated than that. You want competing offers. Just like real estate. Just like real you want estate. more people putting in offers. Yeah. Dating. <laughs> Like any sort of on the planet, you want to basically control the process. You want multiple suitors effectively. And that's the secret. And acquirers know that. And they know that in order for them to get their deal terms, they want what's called a proprietary deal, which is effectively where you negotiate directly with them and nobody else is involved. And so the way they do that is they call you up and they say, wow, Natalie, you have built the most incredible business. I can't believe what you've done. Would you mind if we had coffee sometime? And this is usually a company that's 10, 20, 100 times the size of your business. And you're naturally flattered. Like somebody noticed me, right? So I've been doing this toiling in like in relative obscurity for years. And somebody noticed me, not only somebody, but this giant company. And so of course you say yes. And the hook is in. You have breakfast, lunch, coffee, whatever. and they start to talk about like, would you ever consider a partnership? And you're like, well, yeah, partnership sounds great. And then you get into the partnership conversation. And then it's like, what we should really do is buy you guys. And you're like, all right, well, that sounds great. And make me an offer. And here's the problem. They know that they have you hook, line, and sinker at that point. They know that you're going to buy the lake house, or the beach house, or the ski house in your mind. You're going to tell your spouse, you're going to tell your employees <laughs> And every person you tell, everything you do lessens your negotiating leverage. So you get the offer and it's a little less than you thought, but you think, oh, well, maybe I'll just go for it anyways. I'm kind of mentally checked out of my business now. And again, you sign what's called a letter of intent at that point, which has a what, what's called a no shop clause where you have to effectively stop negotiating with anybody uh, else. Right. And at that point, when you sign that document, you lose all of your leverage because they then drag out due diligence for 60 days. And they know that the longer that goes on, the more committed you are to the sale. And then what they do is usually do something called retrading, which is where they lower the price you agreed to for no other reason. (laughs) What's that? Cheeky bastards is what I'm going to say. Like for no other reason other than they know that they can't. And so you end up at the end of this exhausting 60-day period, emotional roller coaster, where you are just at the end of your rope and you're like, fine, take this off my hands, right? Mm -hmm. And you sell. And they know this. It's the game. They play it with tremendous precision. And Mm -hmm. that's what I feel we need to fight against as an entrepreneurial community. I hate to say it, it's usually private equity groups that play this game. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oftentimes strategic acquirers, they do it because we're great at building our business, great at acquiring customers, building marketing funnels, in your case, coaching clients, but maybe haven't gone through the experience of selling a company. So we don't know any of these sort of tips and tricks and gotchas. So I'm very weary of the ego stroke that is the kind of being sort of approached by an acquirer. And I've seen a lot of cases has worked out badly. Thank you so much for giving us the heads up on that as well, because you can see why it would be so alluring, as you said, like mm. going on a really great first date, because as entrepreneurs ourselves, we the ego is the thing that gets in the way all the time, right? It's the thing that limits Absolutely. us or allows us to do really well. And for somebody to finally come along and acknowledge all our hard work and building this great business and say why it's worth so much and actually want to put in an offer, it must be incredibly exciting. 
Intoxicating. Intoxicating, yeah. And then, as you said, you take your foot off the accelerator in your own business growth and you start focusing. I see it a lot when people go and invest rounds for their business or they're raising capital. They have to take so much focus off actually running and building the business because they're all focused on raising equity, which is important, but it's just slightly different to what we're talking about, but just really frustrating how that can happen and deals can get squeezed. And as you said, then you're just at this point of just take it off my hands, which is before they even came along, you weren't even thinking about it. So thank you for (laughs) warning us on that and to just really do your due diligence. It is actually much like I'm a big fan of real estate investment and it is very much like when a real estate agency comes along and they become your sole agency. Sometimes that's not a smart move either because you can allow other agencies to come in and list for you and have more opportunities to be able to sell at a better price. So really good reminder. Yeah. And um, what I'd love to talk about now, because this is really interesting, is talking a bit more about net worth and how one actually calculates that, especially when it comes to how it's tied to your company's value. I think a lot of listeners might not have even considered that. I do my net worth calculations quite often, not just for my business, but also my investments and other things. But this is a really interesting topic that I'd love for you to delve into more. And whether you are actually risk on in your business, do you want to explain that a little bit more for the people listening in going, what? I am? (laughs) Yeah, risk on is just a Wall Street terminology that means that you're taking on disproportional risk, meaning you're playing a very risky game. And we actually alluded to it earlier where we talked about this idea that your net worth, when you start your business, maybe you got a little equity in your house, maybe you put a bit of money away for your retirement and you start this business isn't worth nothing, right? So like as a percentage of your net worth, it's zero. And then if it grows and continues to be successful over time, over a 10 or 20 year run, it can very easily blossom to the point where it's 50, 60, 80% of your net worth. And everybody talks about diversification, right? Like we're talking about, oh, mm-hmm. you've got to diversify your stocks. Don't buy all your one stock. But realistically, you're totally undiversified in your overall wealth because 80% of it's stuck in your company. Yeah, you totally so, are actually. What's that? You totally are. It's absolutely right. There's no diversification in that. Yeah. 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 And if there's anything, there's, I know it hasn't been quite as severe in Wellington, but I, I think a lot of service businesses around the world have been absolutely crushed by the pandemic. And it has been a brutal reminder for a lot of business owners that no matter how good it is today and how successful you feel, you never know what's around the corner. And so I'm a big believer in this thing called the freedom point, which is when the sale of your company would create enough liquid wealth to live for the rest of your life effectively. Mm -hmm. And when you reach that point, when your business has reached a point where it's worth that, I don't think you have to sell it, but I think you should grab a really good bottle of wine (laughs) and think about it. I think you should think about what you want. And I think it's Warren Buffett, the famous investor said, it's crazy to risk what you want, what you have, what you value, for something you don't. And for a lot of us, when our business has reached a point where selling it would create financial freedom, like that's the point. That's why you started your business in many cases. Like that's what the whole goal was at the beginning was to create financial freedom. You've achieved it if you sell your company. Like why are you focused on that next million dollars in revenue or that next location or that next employee? Isn't what you wanted to do achievable if you sold? And so that's what I think is really important to just have a really reflective conversation around. We never know 
what's around the bend. I interviewed a guy named Rand Fishkin. Have you had Rand on the show? Wrote a book called Lost no, and Founder. But he is great. Yeah. Okay. I'd certainly recommend it. if you can get him on the show. He's great. I had him on Built to Sell Radio and he's just a wonderful guest. And he told me about this, the building of Moz. And mm-hmm. Moz was the software company built up to $5 million in revenue when he got an acquisition offer from HubSpot. Yeah. And they offered him $25 million of cash and HubSpot stock for an, a $5 million company, like five times revenue. It was like mm-hmm. a huge valuation. But Rand was kind of like, you know, things are going really well right now. Like, why do I want to sell, right? And he'd heard that his business could be worth four times top line revenue because it's a software company. They trade at crazy multiples. And he was pretty sure he could get it to $10 million. So in his mind, he's like 10 times four is 40 million bucks. And all these guys are offering me is 25. He turned down Halligan. And instead he raised some money. They went into a bunch of different product lines, none of which he was really suited to be in. They started to kind of flounder, started to bleed cash. The VCs who invested in him removed Rand as the CEO of the company. And I interviewed Rand and I said, man, like, at least you still got your Moss stock. Like that must be worth the truckload these days, right? And he's like, no, probably not worth anything actually, John. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, the way VCs invest is they get preferred shares. And based on the length of time they've held, they're going to get all of their money out before I get a dime. And based on the clip rate of the preferred shares and how long they've held, I'm, prep- I'm most likely washed out. And I said, but Rand, what would that offer have been worth based on the appreciation of HubSpot stock? It was a private company at the time. And he said, yeah, it'd be worth about $200 million. And that's riding it over the top. That's not selling when you had the opportunity. And again, if you can get Rand to tell you that story, it's in the book, Lost and Founders. So it's a great read. But I'm always reminded of that story because again, we don't know what's coming down the pike. And if you've reached this milestone where the sale of your company would effectively create this wealth that you could live comfortably for the rest of your life, at least it's worth asking the question, I think. Yeah. That's such a heartbreaking story, right? And But you could get why if they're in the heart of growth. And I remember Moz being incredibly successful at the time that I came across. Absolutely. I was like, wow, seeing the growth. You can see why you might be like, well, I don't want to sell right now. I'm on a really great trajectory. And who knows that it may have kept going that way, but it's just heartbreaking to see the venture capitalists or what I like to call vulture capitalists get, they get in (laughs) first, they get there first and they take it away. So he ultimately walked away with nothing from all that hard work and an amazing company. Yeah, But you have to tell those stories for people to be able to really appreciate it. I'm curious about for listeners here, because we just talked about during the pandemic, it was also heartbreaking to see all these service providers, especially retail outlets who just had one form of income and just their businesses disappeared overnight. And that's why I always talk about getting paid to be you, but also having diverse income streams so that you're not left up a creek without a paddle. And I'm just curious for people who are listening, maybe if you can even give some examples, we've talked about lots of businesses generating millions, but for people who are generating much less than that, is there an opportunity for them to sell at some point? I've had people come to me when I had the suitcase entrepreneur asking about actually buying that platform out because it wasn't my name, even though I built it. And it was a curious thing at the time. I was like, yeah, maybe, you know, they're buying your assets, your courses, your lists, et cetera. It's slightly different business to a lot of these, Mm -hmm. but just for people listening, like what is potentially possible? Like where do people invest? Are all businesses able to be bought out in some way? Or are there some that just definitely tend towards being more acquirable? That's Mm. I don't think it's a revenue band. It really is. Can the company 
in earnest really run without you. And the best way to do that is through recurring revenue. So if you can structure something where there is recurring revenue, then that's going to give an acquirer some degree of confidence that it's going to continue beyond you. I'm reminded of Danielle Simpson and Arvid Carl, husband and wife team, built a wonderful little business in Berlin, Germany. So Danielle is a English as a second language teacher in Germany. Most of her clients are Chinese people in Germany. So they speak Chinese, they're trying to learn German. And as part of the deal that with these Chinese companies that would hire her to do English as a second language, she had to fill out these forms, these like report cards, basically. And I think they were like daily, like, yes, little Johnny did his homework today, like really brutal. But she'd have to go in and like respond, like, how was the enunciation? And how was the pronunciation? How was the whatever? And all this stuff. And her husband was bemoaning this, like all night, instead of like paying him any attention, she was filling out these report cards. He was an IT guy. Like I could probably build you a little app that would allow like you to just pick from a, like a list of pre-selected responses. So it would be a lot faster. And so she's like, this would be amazing. And so he built this thing. They ultimately created it called Feedback Panda. And she was part of a very <laughs> tight knit, English is a second language group on Facebook, teachers on Facebook, she just put her post on her Facebook group and said, Hey, my husband built this little app. If anybody's interested, let me know. Long story short, she creates this successful business. It's called Feedback Panda. You can look at it today. It's for English as a second language. So a very finite market, mm. like there are only so many English as a second language. So it's not worth like billions of dollars, but I think they got it up to $60,000 a month of recurring revenue, nice. MR monthly recurring revenue and sold it in a very successful exit to a company that specializes in buying kind of small apps. So yes, I think you can definitely sell a company that's hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue. Again, it can't be, I'm a copywriter and I hold my services out for $50 an hour. That's not a sellable company. Mm -hmm. But if you can structure it so that's not dependent on you personally, yeah. no matter how big or small it is, I think you can sell it. Yeah. I just have to come back to Feedback Panda. I love it because, you know, the Chinese love pandas. They really hold them in esteem. So it's a great name for it. It's also it's just amusing to me how many times people attach animals to a business because it just makes people go, oh. But I was actually just thinking about, you know, recurring membership models are great for that. And especially if yeah. you have a membership model that's not based all around you, even the 10K Club in many respects, now that I've got coaches on, while I'm away, if I can continue to build that out, I don't even need to be in that club. That's not my intention because I love it and I love being there, but that is actually something that hasn't got my name to it and can grow and beyond. And it is something that I want to help a thousand women earn 10K a month and beyond. So if your mission wow, is in amazing. there and you can actually make that happen, yeah, and see the ripple effect of that and donate 1% of their revenue to charities, it starts to get pretty mm. exciting. So why do I need to be part of that? The mission is to help those women to create that ripple effect. So even for those of you listening who have membership models or courses that aren't based around you as your brand, but are sellable and scalable, those are definitely things that could be potentially part of your exit strategy. Absolutely. Yeah. Exciting to think about. So this has been such a cool conversation. I hope it's opened people's minds to, okay, what am I going into? Even if you've just got a side hustle right now, what is possible for me? And just to think about this, because I loved your freedom point. At which point have you put all your heart and soul into a business, five years, 10 years, 15, 20, where you actually do get to retire from it and have a really great exit that sets you up for life to keep enjoying life? It doesn't mean you can't start other businesses. You might get addicted. You might start creating businesses that are always built to sell, which would probably make John very happy. 
And yeah, I think it's just really smart to think about that versus I've got a lifetime job now. And if I'm not feeding it, then it falls over without me is a very, very different mentality. So where can people go to learn more about you, find out about both your books and really get some of your wisdom? You go to builttosell.com and actually we put together some gifts for your listeners. If you go to builttosell.com slash untapped, there is a little video series that you can download. There's also a workbook on some things to think about around exiting. And there's also a checklist of different recurring revenue models you can choose from. So yeah, it's just builttosell.com slash untapped. Thank you very much. I hope that you get a lot of people doing that just to open their minds and their possibilities as to what is ahead of them. And especially with what I think we've just been through in the last year and a half and is going to continue on is having different options for yourself and really thinking much more broadly about traditional businesses (laughs) and ways that you can actually expand past that and see what's possible for you. So thank you so much, John. This has been a blast. My pleasure. It's fun. So I hope that you got a lot out of that. I hope that maybe it's given you some really good ideas about what you can start integrating into your business or the one that you're about to grow so that you have some of these thoughts upfront about what is possible for you. Some of these exit buyouts are just staggering and they do set people up for life. I have several friends in my life who are in this situation who built a business really young, sold it for multiple millions and now live a pretty meaningful life working on projects that are really important to them and not actually explicitly working, but giving in so many different ways with charities, with trusts, with philanthropy, and working on stuff that really matters to them. So anything is possible, right? This is super exciting. And I would love for you to just really tune in. So do head across to builttosell.com forward slash untapped. I'm going to as well and grab those free gifts from John, just to get you thinking about recurring revenue that you could build into your business in case in one, two, three, five, 10 years time from now, you actually have a business that you want to sell. And let me know on social at Natalie Sisson on Instagram or simply shout out to me, Natalie Sisson, pretty much anywhere on the webs, what you got out of this podcast. And if it's something really interesting to you, please share it with a friend who you think could actually really benefit from it. It is the best thing you could possibly do for me, aside from leaving a lovely review on why you love the Untapped podcast and how much you're learning that would just make my day because you know what? Every single week this podcast comes out. I am batching podcasts like crazy right now. We as a team put a lot of effort into getting this content out to you free, advert free every single week. So I feel like that is one of the best ways that you can turn around and thank me and my team for doing this work, especially if you enjoy it. And for now, I just want you to go ahead, tap into your potential and have an incredible week figuring out how to get paid to be you and perhaps building a business that you can sell for a ton.